but we have found everlasting life in Christ, absolutely, 100%, and we know that if the world knew what we had, they'd say, please, please tell me the answer to death. Tell me how I can find everlasting life. But they don't know, and that's why we must be bold. That's Ray Comfort sharing about the confidence we have in Jesus Christ and about a world that desperately needs him. On today's episode of Refocus with Jim Daly, Ray has some encouraging words for us as Christians, and he'll share his enthusiastic message about boldly telling others about Christ, motivated by our love for him. Thanks for joining me for this discussion I had with Ray, who's a Christian author, speaker, TV host. Uh, you may have seen him on the program, The Way of the Master, along with Kirk Cameron. This Refocus episode will give us insights into sharing the best news anyone could ever receive, that God sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sins, conquering death, coming back to life after three days in the grave, and offering eternal life to anyone who believes in him. That's how straightforward it is. I hope this conversation will help you to be intentional about engaging others about this truly good news. Uh, Ray has written a book called So Many Lions, So Few Daniels, Living Without Compromise in a World in Need of Truth. We'll be pulling from some of the ideas in that book today. So let's get to it and hear my conversation with Ray Comfort on Refocus with Jim Daly. Ray, it's great to have you. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. An honor. You're coming in from New Zealand, right? You've been in the States a long time, since 1989, but originally from New Zealand. Lived in New Zealand. I was born there twice, came over here in 1989, and uh, absolutely love United States. Physically and then born again in the spirit? Mm-hmm. You're born twice. I'll, I'm picking it up. I'm getting there. Yes. I'm not as remedial a student as you might have thought. <laughs> well, let's get into it. You've been here a long time. You know the American culture, and I'm so glad for what you have given your life to, uh, to know the, the word of the Lord and then to apply it into culture and to challenge people that don't know him, to challenge people who know him. But let's start with kind of the landscape, the 40,000-foot view. Uh, we seem to be in turbulent times. There's always that refrain from people that say, every generation has said that. We all look at what's going on, and we look at teenagers, whether you're from the 50s or the 2020s, we always look at it and go, oh, this has to be the end of the world. But there is a certain element to Romans 3 that looks a lot closer than we've ever been before. Speak to your kind of grasp of what you think the time that we're in and where this is going. Boy, you've... Um... <clears throat> Open up something that I think is just so exciting in Acts 28, 23, I think it is. Paul, it says, they, they gave him a place and then he spoke to people daily concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. So Paul, when he persuaded people concerning Jesus, which is what we're supposed to do, he persuaded them both out of the law of Moses and the law of Moses addresses the conscience. If you want to bring someone to Christ, speak to them out of the law of Moses, open up the Ten Commandments as Jesus did, and he spoke to them out of the prophets. So prophecy is a legitimate tool to use to reach the lost. It's, a, it's an intellectual peg. Uh, it's a peg upon which you can hang your intellect as a non-Christian. The Bible proves itself to be God's word because of prophecies, and we certainly are living in, in times when men's hearts are failing them for fear of that which is coming upon the earth, especially what's happened recently in Israel. I go to a local college 
twice a day. I go on my electric bike with my dog who wears sunglasses. <laughs> People come rushing up, say, I love your dog. He's wearing sunglasses or she's wearing sunglasses. And I get to talk to them and get to share the gospel with them. And there are a lot of people that are very, very fearful because they see the volatility of what's happening in the Middle East. You know, Jerusalem is a burdensome stone for all nations. And nobody after 75 years has been able to come up with a peace plan to marry the two, to get the Arabs and the Jews living alongside each other without problems. And it's all been prophesied in Scripture. Ezekiel 38 actually names the nations that are going to come down on Israel. Jerusalem is certainly a burdensome stone. Men's hearts are failing for fear. So you see all the signs of the end of the age. Mm. And that's a real good bait when you want to go fishing for men. Bait with prophecy gets their interest take them through the commandments to show them they need a savior. So yeah, it's a great time to be alive. It, it's so true and so accurate. The, uh, you know, and I'm thinking about, it. I was talking to my boys who were 23 and 21 the other night. And, uh, you know, I was saying, if you look at ancient empires, the Roman empire, the Greek empire, we don't really talk much about those anymore. They're interesting in terms of architecture and arts and science that they understood at the time, et cetera. But the world doesn't revolve around them anymore. Uh, there just isn't the need to think much about them geopolitically. But look at the Middle East. I mean, we just cannot escape what the scripture writes about this little place geographically and how the whole world is spinning around what's happening. And right now with this conflict that we have, it's obvious, but it's been 2,000 years of this. And uh, it, it is an amazing uh, reinforcement that scripture is true. And it's also very exciting when someone says, look, these signs have always been around. You've been saying this for years, and they're actually fulfilling Bible prophecy because the Bible says that. In the last days, scoffers will come walking after their own lusts. And that sure sums up this generation when it comes to lust. We have escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And um, and they say, where is the promise of his coming? And the Bible says, don't be deceived of this one thing. A day to the Lord is a thousand years to us. And God is not willing that any should perish, but he's patiently waiting. And that's the reason we don't see Christ coming, because God's patiently waiting, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, there is a couple of legitimate uh, tools that we can use when we reason with unbelievers, not only prophecy, but also the human conscience, that's an ally right in the heart of the enemy. When that's stirred up, it affirms the truth of the commandments and the sinner's will to live. Everybody has this cry within them, oh, I don't want to die. And that's because they're not a dog, a horse, a cat, or a cow. They're a human being made in the image of God, and God has placed eternity in their hearts. Mm. So when I talk to them, I, I'll just begin an interview for our YouTube channel by saying, are you afraid of death? And you see their eyes widen because that's not, not, it's not a normal question to ask people. And often people will respond by saying, yeah, I am. So it's a haunting fear, isn't it? When you think about it, it takes your breath away. They say, yeah. And so, you know, the Bible says that in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. It says, every human being is haunted by the fear of death all their lifetime. And then I followed up with this. Do you ever read the Bible? And they say, No. So did you know in the Old Testament it promises that God would destroy death? And in the New Testament it tells us how he did it? They say, I didn't know that. I said, would you like to hear about it? And who's going to say no? When someone's haunted by the fear of death and they hear that God has destroyed death, would you like to hear about it? 
that opens the door for the gospel. And so there is the conscience, the knowledge of right and wrong, which is an ally in the heart of the enemy. And there is the will to live, which God has given to every human being. And they are two legitimate tools to tap into if you want to reason with someone about the gospel. <laughs> I mean, that's it in a nutshell. You've written this book, and it really is the basis for the time together with you. So many lions, so few Daniels. Uh, why do we need more Christians like Daniels in the Bible? Well, let me tell you why I wrote the book. It was inspired by atheists. They put out a t-shirt that said, too many Christians, not enough lions. And I thought, oh, that's culturally sensitive. It's like <laughs> too many Jews, not enough Nazi ovens, too many blacks, not enough lynching ropes. And I was angered. And mm. so that's what inspired me to write the book, because we certainly need Daniels. We need Christians who will fearlessly and faithfully preach truths that are calculated to bring about a revival. Men and women of God who are not fearful of this world, who will fling open the doors and pray despite what the world says. And that's what Daniel did. And there's a reason you and I should be bold. Let me share it with you. We're like firefighters. When you're a firefighter, you may arrive at a fire and look up in the fifth story, there's a woman screaming and she's got two kids clinging to her. Right behind her are flames and you know she's going to be burned to death with her kids within five minutes. She will be dead. What does the firefighter think? I'd rather go home, be with my family. Oh no, he can't do that. He's a firefighter. And so despite his fears, he climbs a 60-foot ladder and reaches out and grabs her. And the Bible likens you and I to firefighters. It says, and others... Having compassion, save with fear, pulling them from the fire, hating with the garment spotted by the flesh. What is the firefighter doing? He's ignoring his fears and looking to that woman, her two children, and their terrible fate. That's how he overcomes his fears. And that's what you and I need to do as Christians. When I'm sitting next to a guy, maybe in a plane, which I had happened many times, I'm sitting there like a Zacchaeus, and next to me is this Goliath, a big guy wearing a suit. I mean, that is just scary. And he's got glasses, so he's obviously an intellectual. So I'm terrified, and I'm not kidding. Many a time, I have prayed when the seat's empty in a plane next to me. This is what I pray, and I'm not kidding. I pray, Lord, please don't let this person show up. <laughs> I don't want him to show up because I don't want to have to be confronted with this Goliath called the fear of man. And the way I overcome it, and I've overcome it every time, is not to think of myself, but to think of that person and their terrible fate, mm -hmm. and then to address the conscience and to address their will to live. My biggest remover of the Goliath has been this one question when it comes to sharing. It's this one question, and I've used it for about 30 years. Do you think there's an afterlife? Mm -hmm. I don't say... Uh, would you like to talk about Jesus and God and the Bible, repentance and the cross? No, I don't say those things. I just say to a complete stranger, do you think there's an afterlife? Like if, if a plumber shows up at our ministry, I'll see him plumbing under a, a basin. I'll say, hey, how you doing? He says, good. What's your name? Fred. Fred. Got a question for you. He says, what? So do you think there's an afterlife? I haven't mentioned heaven, hell, judgment day, sin, righteousness, Christ, all these things that make him and me feel a little uncomfortable. I've just said, do you think there's an afterlife? And Fred might answer, might answer whoa, that's the big question, isn't it? I don't know. I said, do you think about it much? He says, yeah, all the time. His all the time has just completely dissipated my fears. He's a human being. He's not the Antichrist. He hasn't stabbed me to death. He's got a will to live, and he's thinking about the issues of life and death. And so I say, 
well, if heaven exists, are you going to make it there? Are you a good person? He says, yeah, I'm a really good person. So, well, let's look at the commandments and see how you're going to do on Judgment Day. How many lies have you told? He says, plenty. Ever stolen something? Yeah, just little things. Ever used God's name in vain? He says, oh, yeah, I do it all the time. You know, it's wrong. So you've taken God's holy name and used it as a cuss word. Would you do that with your mother's name? He says, whoa. I said, this is serious, man. And I said, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust for her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Ever done that? He says, every day. So, Fred, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, adulterate heart. And you have to face God on judgment day. If he judges you by those commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. He says, wow, I'll be guilty. I said, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You have earned your wages. So what did God do for guilty sinners? So they wouldn't have to go to hell. And then I share the cross that despite the fact we're sinners, Christ died for our sins. We broke the law, the Ten Commandments. Jesus paid the fine. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, a judge will let you go if someone pays those fines. He says, you're guilty, but you're out of here. Someone's paid your fine. And it's legal. Well, God can legally take the death sentence off us and let us live because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He paid the fine, rose from the dead, defeated death, and all we have to do to find everlasting life is not get religious, not do good works, but simply repent and trust in Jesus like you trust a parachute. And so that door that got me through into all that was simply that question, do you think there's an afterlife? So that means anyone can do it. You can do it with your neighbor. You can do it with grandpa as you're sitting at Christmas dinner. You're not bringing up religion. You're just asking for his opinion. Do you think there's an afterlife? And it certainly opens the door. It's a wonderful tool to, re to use. Ray, let me, let me, in listening to that, I totally relate to that. And it's good. The difficulty comes when there is more conflict, when you've asked those questions along the way, you get to the Ten Commandments, and some, I, I really don't care about the Ten Commandments. I mean, they start responding in a way that's not reflective, like the plumber. The plumber sounds like a great guy who could see his deficit and wanted change. What do you do when you're confronting somebody who is very rooted in their pride, their self-righteousness, they don't want to be accountable to somebody else. What does that conversation sound like? It sounds good um, because it's nothing wrong with a little bit of conflict. Uh, but it's really important to ask that question, are you afraid of dying at the beginning? That's what I say to people. And that shows me if I'm dealing with a humble heart. Some young guy might say, not me. When you're dead, you're dead. Your number's up. It's up. I think you liar. I know you're haunted by the fear of death. You're so proud, you won't admit you're scared of dying. Hmm. You should be scared of something that's going to kill you, and death's going to kill you. That's my thoughts. So when someone says, yeah, I'm afraid of dying, you know you're dealing with a humble person, someone that really is seeking after truth. So that really helps me to know where I'm going. But if someone says, I don't believe in the Ten Commandments, I say, well, it doesn't matter. If you're in court and a judge says, you're going to jail, and you say, I don't believe in the law or jail, it doesn't change anything. They're taking your way. And I explained to them, I said, do you realize that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And this is very, very effective in widening the eyes of a skeptic. Yeah, it says the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is paying you in death for your sins. Like a judge looks at a criminal who's committed multiple murders and yet says, I'm a good person. I don't believe in all this law stuff. The judge says, I'm going to show you how serious your crime is. I'm giving you the death sentence. This is your wages. This is what we're paying you. It's what you've earned. Mm. And I say... Sin is so serious to a holy God, it may not be to you, but it is to God that he's given you the death sentence. You're on death row, and your death will be evidence to you that God is deadly serious about sin. So what I'm trying to do is put the fear of God in them. 
because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the Bible says, through the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. And sinners won't depart from evil as long as they think God is a divine butler or that he doesn't exist or that he's somehow like a celestial Santa Claus where they've got the image of God where he's sitting on a cloud wearing a pink nightie playing touch fingers with Adam. That's not God. He has mm. to be feared. When I was 16, I, I wasn't a Christian. This was six years before I came to Christ. I found myself in long grass behind a dance hall at night with a pretty young 16-year-old, and we were lying in the long grass, and my intentions were not honorable. But she said something that as a non-Christian put the fear of God in me like you wouldn't believe. Hmm. It's only five or six words. So we see laying there in the long grass at night, she just turned to me and said, you know what? God's watching us. <laughs> and it was like a huge bucket of ice fell on the heavens. There was a puff of steam. And I said, let's go back into the dance hall. And I look back and say, oh, thank God for the fear of the Lord. I didn't even know the Lord. Mm. And yet the fear of God caused me to depart from evil and not make a terrible mistake, get a young girl pregnant, shame her family, shame my family, maybe pursue an abortion or just things that were terrible. And so I, I not only as a Christian believe in the fear of God, I cultivate it in my own life. Why don't I look at pornography? Why don't I lust after women secretly? Because there's pleasure in it. Because I know the eye of the Lord is in every place beholding the evil and the good. And that's also my motivation for sharing the gospel. One of the motivations, Paul says, wherefore knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. If I don't fear for the ungodly and have a measure of the fear of God, I'm not going to obey the Great Commission. But if I do fear God, I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity I have to be a good, uh, a true and faithful servant. And the motivation is a fear of God, a healthy fear of God. Those words aren't used very often, a healthy fear of God, but it certainly is healthy as a Christian to cultivate that healthy fear of God. Let me ask you about uh, temperament. Um, you know, you're a person with intensity. I mean, you live it, you believe it, you're the fireman. And when you talk about Daniels and the lack of Daniels, I could see you relating to that. You know, if we're going to believe this, let's live it with conviction. I mean, why, why pretend? Why go halfway? But where does that, and I, I'm talking about temperament because I, I can see that God uses people in different ways, the hand, the foot, the eye, the ear. We have that example in, in the New Testament. But what about that intensity uh, when we are looking at what really is in front of a non-believer and we are that person in the rescue position to have intensity to say, hey, you got to know what's ahead of you. I mean, it's hell. And we're here to uh, proclaim the truth to you. There's so much wrapped up in that, but speak to, I guess, initially speak to that variety of the Christian expression where you're going to have more timid souls who are going to be a little less intense, and then on the other end, the more intense person that really wants to be the fireman. So, you know, you got your dispatcher, you got your fireman, you got the hospital. Maybe you can wrap that into a bow for us. And what does the Lord expect from each of us, especially those that may not be wired with that boldness? Or is that something the Lord gives all of us? Boy, you've asked a whole, asked a whole stack of questions there, and it's just it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, I'm, a, I'm a quiet person, but I'm intense about what I'm talking about because I believe all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. I'm horrified mm. of the ungodly. You can be intense, and yet you can have a tremendous 
compassionate tone. That's what I try and cultivate. Well, I don't try and it's just there. I've got a compassionate tone. I'm earnest because I believe what I what I believe what the scriptures say. Um, many years ago, I used to have a drug prevention center, which unfortunately was in High Street. Unfortunate choice of street names for a drug center. Right. And then we moved up five stories into a big dome building, the Regent Theater in Christchurch. And I re received a phone call at about seven o'clock one morning that woke me up. And all I heard was this guy say, Ray, the Regent Theater building's on fire. Now, I believed him. I didn't say, Neville, <laughs> stop your silly joking. I believed him because of his intensity. Mm. I could hear it in his voice. And that whole building was on fire. And, and and we've got to have that sobriety, that intensity, that earnestness in our tone. Others save with compassion. That compassion should be evident. I say to sinners, you can't see tears in my eyes, but I've got them in my voice. I care about you. I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. Please consider what we're saying. You know, there's a a, a real key to this boldness that's so, so necessary, and that key is to understand that I'm talking to this human being that has a will to live that we talked about a little bit earlier. We have what this world wants more than anything else. Think of a waitress. She's looking at three businessmen that have just come into her restaurant. They are obviously rich. They're wearing very slick three-piece suits. They've got these little briefcases. They sit at a table, and it's obvious they're wheeling and dealing millions of dollars. So what does she do? She walks up to that table and just butts in and says, can I take your order? <laughs> she doesn't wait for a gap for these important businessmen to stop talking. She just butts in. Why? Because she has, she knows what they want. She has what they want. They're there to eat food. So that provokes her boldness. And we mm. know that we have what the world wants. They think we're religious kooks that believe in fairy tales. But we have found everlasting life in Christ Absolutely, 100%. And we know that if the world knew what we had, they'd say, please, please tell me the answer to death. Tell me how I can find everlasting life. But they don't know. And that's why we must be bold. This is what Jesus said. I mean, if only they knew. In John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, he said to the woman at the well, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you would ask him and he'd give you everlasting life. And if the world knew what we had, they would plead with us to share the gospel with it. You know, I often ask sinners this question. I say, look, you're a doctor. You've got in front of you a patient who looks well. I mean, he goes to the gym every day. He's got a great physique. He looks very healthy, but you know he's going to die in two weeks because you've seen the x-rays. There's a poison seeping through a system. You have a cure in your pocket, what are you going to do? Give them the cure or give them the x-rays? And most people say, ah, give them the cure. I say, that's not going to work. He thinks he's healthy. He's going to say, doctor, what are you giving me a cure for? I'm not sick. He'll be offended. He'll think you're silly giving him a silly cure when he's obviously well. But if the doctor knows what he's doing, he'll bring the x-rays around. He'll bring him up to his face and say, look at this. This is a poison seeping through your system. You're going to be dead in two weeks. And then the patient says, Oh, I see what you're saying. This is deadly serious. What should I do? Now he's ready for the cure. Now he'll appreciate it and appropriate it because he's seen his disease. And what we've done in America for the last 80 years is preach the gospel. 
John 3.16, tell them about Jesus, we preach the cure without taking the time to do what Jesus did in Mark 10, verse 17, when the rich young ruler came up to him and said, how can I get everlasting life? He said, you know the commandments, and he took him through the Ten Commandments. Why? To show him the x-rays. When I open up the commandments and let the conscience do its duty, suddenly he's deadly serious and saying, what must I do to be saved? And you can see it happen again, again, again and again on our YouTube channel where sinners are humbled by the law and begin to thirst after righteousness because of its, uh, its power. Yeah, Ray, I mean, it is. It's really well stated and it's laid out so well. When you look at the love of God, I think sometimes this can trip us up. And I think, again, our temperaments can play into this, not to keep that as a crutch. But uh, it seems that we have this tension. People talk about this tension between God's truth and God's love. And of course, I think a more mature Christian comes in and says, God is both. And when we exemplify him, we exemplify both of those things, God's truth and God's love. But we do we do as human beings in our limitations, we're more like a light switch, right? It's either on or off. So it's either God's love or God's truth. And, and we struggle, I think, in our own way of expressing God to do both simultaneously. Speak to the art of that, I guess, and what God is asking of us to love our neighbor, even if our neighbor's wretched. <laughs> yeah, um, it's important to realize when the love of God is expressed in the New Testament, it's almost always in direct correlation to the cross. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or substitute for our sins. God commanded his love toward us that while yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Or Paul's, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But I love the son of God who, who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you want to show a sinner that God loves them, don't just say God loves you. That means nothing. Open up the commandments, show him his sin, show him that God's wrath abides on him, and yet God set his son while we're yet sinners to take our place on that cross. That will show him God's love. And one thing that motivates me more than anything else is the high-octane fuel of gratitude. Gratitude drives me to incessantly run to do God's will. I delight to do His will. And that's because of this fact. Before I was a Christian, I was extremely happy. I had my own business, my own car, my own house, my own wife. We'd made one child. I had absolute freedom to do anything I wanted, anytime I wanted, because I had my own surf shop. Wanted to go surfing, slam a note on the door. Had no pressure. And I, one day I had this revelation that I was on death row, that I was part of the ultimate statistic, 10 out of 10 die. And I thought, this is crazy. I'm waiting around to die. I can have a good time while I'm dying. I can enjoy the pleasures of sin while I'm dying, but I'm waiting to die. Like Solomon, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's like chasing the wind. One night in 1972, no, it was 1971, I looked at my wife, newly married, and I wept. Tears dripped down my cheeks as I thought about the futility of living without her. If she died, all my materialism would mean nothing. And I just cried out, why? Why? Wasn't even crying out to God, but he heard my prayer. And six months later, I came to Christ. And I cannot tell you 
the gratitude that exploded in me that God took me out of futility and gave me purpose, took me out of death and gave me life, took me out of darkness and gave me light. And I exploded as a Christian in that sense, evangelistically. I got a bus, 34-seater bus, and wrote one-foot-high lettering all the way around it, the gift of God is eternal life and professional sign writing. I began standing on a soapbox and preaching the gospel every day in the heart of a local square. If anyone could have been considered a religious nut, in those days it was me. Nowadays, I am much worse. <laughs> because that high-octane fuel of gratitude is still exploding, and I use every minute of every day to seek the lost because Jesus said this, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. If, if you love God and you love people, You'll say with the disciples, we cannot but speak that which we've seen and heard. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's the conviction right there. You, you also have an illustration, I believe, of an icy river. I wanted to make sure we include that because it's a great metaphor or a great parable of the way we approach things. What's that story? I, I, I stole it as a Christian, righteous <laughs> stealing from a book. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Sorry, it was just a, a, a little devotional I used to read to my kids many years ago. I think it's where I got it. It was about a man who had to get to a certain destination at a certain time, and he came across a river that was iced over. And he thought, I've got to get across. So he got a stick. He thought, how thick is the ice? And he tapped a stick. And he began tapping his way out there. And said, well, I think it will hold my weight. He called out. And after about 30 minutes, he'd only gone about 20 or 30 feet, tapping his way, terrified, sweat pouring from his brow, that any minute he could sink to an icy grave. And then suddenly he heard, a, he heard a sound that astounded him. And he looked around. It was a coalman with a truck full of coal, a, a horse and cart full of coal, singing at the top of his voice. He came onto the ice, goes past the guy that's lying on the ice to the other side. And he stood to his feet and th realized what a fool he had been. This ice was solid and he couldn't break it even if he tried to. And you and I can look at the promise of God that are exceeding great and wonderful promises of God and say, I wonder if that is true. And we can inch our way across life, sweating with every turn, or we can stand up on that firm and sure, solid promise of God that cannot be broken. Our whole faith rests on this one premise. That is, it's impossible for God to lie. That means you can believe every word he said, every word about the future, every word about your sins being washed away, every word about everlasting life. And that's why prophecy is so important. If a man is a skeptic and you show him prophecy in the Bible that's being fulfilled 2,500 years later, or I've got a book called Scientific Facts in the Bible, and you show him scientific facts in the Bible that men didn't, didn't know about 2,000 years ago, being revealed to them in Scripture about the Earth's free float in space, about quarantining and all these things, suddenly the Scriptures have credibility. And if they're credible, then the promise of everlasting life is true. And that's when we preach Christ crucified and the glorious hope of the gospel. When you when you look at uh, the way the scripture describes some people planting the seed, some people watering the seed, some people reaping the harvest, what does that uh, speak to your heart about the roles and what we do? Yeah, I planted seed almost every day, open air in Christchurch uh, daily, and it was just planting seed. Or the other metaphor, I, I was sowing in tears. I was just every day, and there's no results. No results for 12 years, hardly any results. Now and then something wonderful happened, but it was mainly sowing in tears. When I came to the U.S., I started getting letters from people who came to Christ because they heard the gospel 12 years ago. 
And God had to get me out of the way before he started letting people reap. And that's what it's like as a Christian. You know, I don't get decisions for Jesus. That's not my agenda. I'm just planting the seed of the gospel. If I've got a veggie garden, I don't plant the seed and then reap the same day. I just plant the seed and then I water, get my wife to water, someone else to water. God does the growing and then we pick the fruit. And if we pick the fruit, we're blessed. And if I get to pray with someone to make a commitment to Christ, I know I'm blessed and that someone in the past have sowed. So each of us need to look to how Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler and how that rich young ruler walked away from the Son of God, turned his back on him. It was a failure. No, it wasn't. He was probably there on the day of Pentecost on his knees. We just don't know. A lot of the Pharisees that rejected Jesus could have been on their knees on the day of Pentecost. We just don't know. But we do know that God is faithful to cause that word, that seed to grow if we'll just plant it in faith. You know, Ray, one of the fun things is the little experiences that we run into. And, you know, people are listening and going, wow, this dude, he sounds like a super Christian. And he's always looking for the guy next to him on the airplane. And that could be intimidating, but you're also a regular guy. And I think you have a story about uh, backing your car into a tree, which I could relate to. (laughs) But uh, what happened with your uh, poor driving skills? And I think it was your wife that was uh, helping you see these things. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm a a doofus. I'm really a klutz. You've got no idea. If there was a glass of milk in front of me, that would spill (laughs) seconds. And you ask all my friends. I wrote a book called 101 of the Dumbest Things People Have Done, and I star in that book. (laughs) I have caught myself on fire twice. Twice. Once I leaned over a hot plate in a white robe and it went... And the whole thing was on fire, and I thought, I seem to be on fire. So I took the robe off, and I thought, and I threw it down and just went, Poof. Another time, um, I, I, I went to st- – there was – what is it? I dropped a piece of fish into some oil that was boiling on the stove. I do a lot of cooking. And suddenly there was this pillar of fire in front of me. I felt like Moses. And I got the fire extinguisher, and the whole place was just like a – it snowed. I didn't realize that's what happened when you use a fire extinguisher. <laughs> was white and then i hear my my wife pull up the driveway and i had all the windows open in the house she said what's going on i said nothing much do you want to take a drive around the around the block for a minute because <laughs> the place was full of smoke but you ask her she's had sympathy letters from two different women because she's married to such a klutz and i remember i was trying to witness to a guy and i backed up to witness to him and i backed into a palm tree that was outside I thought, well, at least no one saw it. Well, it was on our security camera, and everybody saw it. <laughs> that is my life. And so if you think I'm some sort of super Christian, realize I'm not, and think of it like this. I've had people come up to me and say, oh, you're so gifted. You've got the gift of evangelism. That's like saying to someone who's just won a marathon, hey, I just saw you break the tape. You're so gifted. He's going to turn to you and say, what are you talking about? I'm not gifted. I've spent the last six years running 30 miles a week. I've denied myself chocolate cake, ice cream, sugar, all these things. Look at this muscle. That's from hard work. I've bruised. I've fallen over. I've hurt myself. I've got here not because I'm gifted. I broke the tape because of hard work. And if you look at my life, you'll see I spent most of my life with bruises, falling over, making a mess, putting my foot in my mouth, saying things that were wrong but I've learned from experience. I'm not gifted. Anyone can do this. All it takes is experience. And as you do it, you'll find that you... Look, one thing that intimidates most Christians is an atheist. 
someone says, oh, do you think it's an afterlife? I'm an atheist. <laughs> if you think to yourself, this guy's an intellectual, you're being very foolish because the Bible says he's a fool. And this is why. And I ask atheists this and I see them backslide and you can see them backslide on our YouTube channel. I just say, so you're an atheist? Yeah. So do you really believe the scientific impossibility that nothing created everything? You get to what? I said, uh, do you really believe as an atheist the scientific impossibility that nothing was in the beginning, but nothing created flowers and birds and trees, the sun, the moon, the stars, puppies and kittens, male and female, the marvels of the human eye, the miracle of childbirth, the miracle of the human brain, the blueness of the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, all these things happen because nothing created it. And they go, well, I don't believe that. I, there was something in the beginning. So now he's just backslidden to saying there was something. I say, oh, so you think there was something in the beginning? that created everything, it just wasn't God. And they say, yeah, that's it. I say, let's see if we can find out why you don't want it to be God. When did you last look at pornography? I say, oh, this, this morning. So what do you think God would think of that? I say, could it be that you're doing things you know God would frown upon morally, and that's why you deny his existence? For the same reason thieves don't want to go near police, and they often go, yeah, that's right, that's right. Because they've got a reasoning. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of interesting that you get them there. The fact that, you know, people do become, Christians become intimidated with atheists because it's kind of circular reasoning. They can discount anything. You actually had a chat with somebody at a skate park. I think his name was Chad that you mentioned. How did that conversation go with Chad the atheist? Well, Chad was kind of um, very ungodly, very foul mouthed, very hard to the gospel. So I brought out a secret weapon. I carry what's called In-N-Out cards. In-N-Outs uh, are the best uh, hamburgers in Southern California. Uh, celebrities love going there. We, we've got one in and out here. I give away thousands of those cards. They're $5 cards, and I use them all the time. And I gave one to Chad and one to his daughter, and he just melted. And the Bible says this in the, in the book of, I think, Peter, for so is the will of God that by your well-doing you put to silence the ignorance of foolish Man, that's exactly what happened. If you are, if you're able to be rich in good works, it'll put them to silence. I actually carry cards on me all the time. I get turned down daily at the local college to do interviews. I say to someone, "Would you like to give an interview for our YouTube channel? 265 million views." They say, "No." So okay, I'll say, "I'll give you two five dollar in and out cards if you do an interview." Nope. So I say, "Well, here's a five dollar one anyway," and they go. Oh, I didn't do the interview. I said, no, I just want to show you I care about you. Nice to meet you. And it's so powerful. They almost cry because we're talking about the world. As Christians, we're, we're very generous with each other, but the world's not. They're cold as ice. So mm. when a stranger does something like that, it's very meaningful. So it's a real key to, as a Christian to be rich in good works. Carry some little gift cards if you can afford it. And if you get a witness to someone, give them the card at the end and they'll go, "Wow, thank you so much. And they'll remember that. That's a great idea. But you, you kind of walked him through out of the dead end and, and back into the realization that his atheism doesn't answer the questions. Right. That's kind of and, the normal experience. Yeah. And it's because um, there's no such thing as an atheist. God doesn't believe in atheists. Romans chapter one says, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every atheist know God exists. This is why. Every time he looks at the sky, he sees the painting of the painter. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. It's a declaration. When we broke away from Britain, it wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a declaration. And the heavens declare the glory of God. The blueness of the sky, those big puffy clouds, the birds, the sun, everything we see in the heavens are the painting of the painter. And the other reasoning I do, and it's based on scripture, is when I say to an atheist, I can prove God to you in 30 seconds. You want to hear? And they go, go ahead. I say, the building is proof of the builder. Is that right? Yeah. You know there was a builder when you look at a building because buildings can't build themselves. Builder could have died 50 years ago, but you know there was a builder because buildings don't build themselves. Same with paintings and painters. Painter could have died 500 years ago, but you wouldn't be so silly to say that this painting painted itself. I said the whole of creation screams of the genius of God's handiwork. Everywhere you look, you can see design from the atom to the universe. And God's given you a conscience, so you know right from wrong. The word conscience means with knowledge. Con is with, science is knowledge. So you're without excuse. And when you do wrong, when you look at pornography, that conscience screams. When you fornicate, when you lie, when you steal, your conscience bears witness of you, and that's why you're going to be without excuse on the day of judgment. And man, I love you. I don't want you to end up in hell, so make sure you repent and do it today and ask God to change your heart. And I tell him this, and this is just so exciting. I said, the miracle of being born again is that God gives you your own personal miracle. He won't speak to you from the sky. He won't open up the heavens. All he will do is make you a brand new person overnight so that once when you're a sin-loving sinner that drunks sin like water, you'll suddenly begin to thirst for righteousness. And something in you will want to please God more than anything else. And that's because God has taken his law and written it upon your heart so that he's causing you to walk in his statutes. And that'll be your own personal miracle that you love righteousness. And I said, I've been 50 years a Christian. And I look back and say, look what God did in my life. He made me a brand new person overnight with the assurance that I've got everlasting life, that death has lost its sting. And that'll happen to you today if you'll let go of your sins. Ray, th this has been so incredible. I mean, you have carried the water here and you've given so much expression to the importance of reaching people for Christ. There doesn't need to be really much added to that at all. And I so appreciate the time to be able to spend with you and talk with you about the exuberance that you have in the Lord and your love for people, loving them enough to tell them what's ahead and uh, being bold enough. I think it's a great, you know, you're a great teacher in that regard, illustrator of why we need to keep this right at the forefront of our relationships. And uh, I so appreciate the opportunity to meet you and talk with you and listen to how the Lord has shaped these attitudes and ideas in your heart from Scripture and the way you apply them every day with zeal. It's awesome. Thanks for being with us. I so appreciate it. God bless you. Well, thank you for having me. God bless you. Interesting insights and stories from Ray Comfort, and I hope he's encouraged you in your Christian faith today. You've heard us talking about Jesus Christ, and if you don't know him, let me first invite you to put your trust in the Lord and to be assured of eternal life with God. We have Christian counselors who will pray with you and can lead you to a knowing faith in Christ. Uh, just call us 1-800-A-FAMILY to set up an appointment to speak with one of those counselors. We also have a free online booklet called Coming Home, which uh, very simply explains how to become a Christian and how to walk with God. The link is right there in the episode notes. I hope you'll click on it and read Coming Home. 
And then for the believer, I recommend you get Ray's book, So Many Lions, So Few Daniels. It'll help you develop courage in sharing Christ with others. Uh, We've all struggled uh, to share our faith from time to time. I probably was a little more at ease with it back in my 20s, ironically, but I can remember a time when the Lord clearly told me to say something to somebody. I shrank back from doing it, and what played out for that person was exactly what the Lord had told me he was going to do for him. So that was a little lesson for me not to hold back, especially when you feel the Lord, the Holy Spirit, nudging you to say something to somebody. So check out Ray's book by going to the link in the episode notes. I hope you'll also support Refocus. We wouldn't be able to do this podcast without your donations. So let us know how the podcast has encouraged you and make a gift to help others grow in their faith. When you make a gift of any amount, we'll send you Ray's book as our way of saying thank you for supporting the podcast. The link is in the show notes. Now for the inbox segment, here's a voicemail from John. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Sometimes I have trouble sharing my faith because I don't quite know how to tell somebody that the Christian life can be difficult. Uh, There's such an emphasis on happiness in the culture, but the Christian life isn't all about happiness. So can you help me with that? John, the most consistent way I find to, to share my faith is through my actions and my attitude. I mean, it's such a good way to do it. Be that joyful person. Be the person on the plane that is helpful and not grumpy and disgruntled. I remember walking up to a rental car place and they had uh, forgotten or misplaced the reservation. It's one of those classic situations. And I was with a colleague here at Focus and he had made the reservation and he got pretty upset. You know, how could you lose my reservation and da, da, da. And then the counter person said, oh, you work for Focus on the Family. I love Focus on the Family. And it was just a great lesson for me to always be on a positive side because you never know when somebody's going to find you out. And uh, not only that, but it's just good to be a witness. And that gives you the boldness to talk to somebody about the Lord. What you'll find when you're living that joyful, loving life, people will notice. They'll even ask you, why are you so different? And what a great opportunity to share Jesus with them. Uh, John, thanks for the question. And since I answered it here on the podcast, I'll send you a copy of my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Now, if you have a question for me, please send a voicemail through the link in the show notes. This is your opportunity to interact with us here, and I look forward to your question about engaging with the culture. You can also share your story with us about what God is doing in your life uh, through Refocus. If the podcast has helped you to share Christ with someone, we'd love to hear about it. Thanks for listening to Refocus with Jim Daly. You can help us reach more people by telling your friends and family. Also, like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. On the next episode of Refocus, Dr. John Marriott shares common roadblocks to faith that young people run into and how to show love to people experiencing doubts. I need to engage with him on the value effective gut level and paint the most beautiful picture that I can of Christianity and help him to see that when Christianity is lived out, the way that Jesus really calls his people to live it out, it is the best and most and the fullest expression of those values that you care about. That's coming up on Monday, February 26th on the next Refocus with Jim Daly. Are you a pastor? Then you know ministry is full of challenges, but those challenges sometimes come from lies that you believe about your role and expectations of you. 
As a pastor, you and your spouse need to be refreshed and encouraged. And that's why Focus on the Family presents the Focused Pastor Couples Conference. Join us as we hear from Paul David Tripp, Dr. Greg Smalley, Ted Cunningham, and more. Mark your calendar to join us on October 28th through 30th right here at Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. Visit thefocusedpastor.com slash refresh for more details.